Welcome to the Talks at Google podcast, where great minds meet. I'm Alan, bringing you this episode with some of this generation's legends of basketball. Talks at Google brings the world's most influential thinkers, creators, makers, and doers all to one place. Every episode is taken from a video that can be seen at youtube.com slash talks at Google. This episode welcomes Bob Costas, Julius Dr. J. Irving, George McGinnis, and Dan Issel to tell stories of the American Basketball Association and how it shaped the current NBA style of basketball. The legitimate rival to the NBA in its heyday, the American Basketball Association, or ABA, captured a large and extremely loyal fan base with its unique style of play. What is now common play in the current NBA was pioneered by the ABA, which was known for its high-scoring, fast-tempo, and stylish plays, including popularizing the three-point shot and the dunk contest. The ABA and the NBA merged in 1976, bringing several teams to the NBA and the three-point shot to the NBA in 1979. In 2014, the Dropping Dimes Foundation Incorporated was created as a way to give back to the ABA players. The foundation's main focus and concern is for the well-being and betterment of former players of the American Basketball Association and their families, who are experiencing financial or medical difficulties and have encountered significant financial hardship or sickness. After the NBA-ABA merger, the ABA itself ceased to exist as a going concern. Former ABA players who were not part of the merger, or who did not play long enough in the NBA to receive vested pension benefits, were generally left in disadvantaged financial circumstances. Moderated by Googler Mike Abrams, here is Dropping Dimes, the American Basketball Association. Welcome to today's talk at Google. My name is Mike Abrams, and I'm going to be moderating this wonderful panel today. Um, if you're watching the live stream, we're going to be taking questions at the end, so feel free to add your questions throughout the discussion. Um, and let's get to our panel. We have an incredible group here today to talk about the American Basketball Association and the Dropping Dimes Foundation. The Dropping Dimes Foundation is a nonprofit that works to help ABA players who are experiencing financial and medical difficulties. You can learn more at uh, about this wonderful organization, all the wonderful work they're doing, and how to get involved by going to droppingdimes.org, as you can see below. Um, so let's get to our panel today. Um, we have legendary sports broadcaster Bob Costas and Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Famers Julius Dr. J. Irving, George McGinnis, and Dan Issel. Welcome, guys. Hi, Mike. Hi, Doc. Hi, Dan. Hi, George. All right. All right. Well, Thanks everyone for being here and taking the time to uh, to talk about the ABA. I'm I'm really excited about the panel today. But Bob, I kind of want to kick things off with you. Um, okay. I think there's going to be a lot of viewers here today that don't know a ton about the ABA, um, and maybe only know it through pop culture, or movies like Semi Pro, or books like Loose Balls and things like that. So you started your career pretty early on broadcasting the ABA. What was the stigma of the league when you joined? Well, I was 22 years old and right out of Syracuse University. I did the two seasons of the Spirits of St. Louis, and they still live in my heart. There's my Spirits hat. Um, and I think the the ABA is really legendary. You know, the term legendary is thrown around a lot in sports. But for something to be a legend, we can't have seen everything about it with our own eyes. We have to hear stories. And not so much of the ABA was on television. So a lot of it is somebody says, hey, did you see the time that Dr. J jumped over Bird Averett at Freedom Hall? Well, I saw it from over here and I saw it from over here. And my story is a little different than this guy's story. That's what makes legends. And the quality of play was so good. And I think that everybody within the league had a little bit of a chip 
on his shoulder because we weren't getting the recognition that we deserved. We knew how good it was. We knew how exciting it was. And it was a fraternity because it was so closely knit and only those who were part of it. And I was just a small part of it at the end, but enough to get the feel of it. Those of us who were a part of it uh, have a, a sense of it that no one else could possibly have unless they were there. So I think that kind of leads to my first question for the players, which is you talked about the the style of play and how good the basketball was. And I think the NBA at the time had a little bit of slower pace and the ABA was a lot faster. Um, you all had a choice to choose between the NBA and the ABA. How did you make the choice to join the ABA and, and, and why? Well, I think Dan had a choice. <laughs> George and I left his underclassmen. So Dan, you might want to tackle that one in terms of having a choice. Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, simple for me because uh, I had gone to the University of Kentucky, had fallen in love with the state. My wife, Sherry, was born and raised in Lexington. I was good friends with Louis Dampier, who was already on the team. And so moving 75 miles up the road to play in Louisville was a, a very simple choice for me. And, and I want to echo what Bob said, that the quality of play uh, was just amazing. I mean, you look at all of the Hall of Famers that began their careers in, in the ABA. And, you know, at that time, the reason we were so good is because of the two players on this screen, people like Doc and George, George Gervin, all coming out early when the NBA wouldn't draft or couldn't draft players whose college class hadn't graduated. So by the last four or five years of the ABA, we had as much, if not more, young talent than the NBA did. Mm -hmm. I would concur. I think the thing for me about choosing Indiana over the Indiana Pacers over the NBA was George is talking, but I can't hear him. Oh, you can't hear me? Can you hear me now? I, I can hear you. Well, the thing for me was I went to Indiana University. And just like Dan, you know, 50 miles away was my hometown of Indianapolis. Uh, I had watched a championship team uh, win in 1970 or, or 69 and uh, or 70 they won. And uh, then I came on the team and won two more. But it was just the convenience of playing at home and having my friends and family being able to see me. It was a lot of fun. So uh, I'd love to hear you guys talk about the style of basketball because it seemed like the games were polarizingly different. Um, it was a little bit more like fast paced and uh, more of, I think, what you see today. So was that how did that influence kind of a little bit, again, playing in the ABA and what was it like? Well, I can, I can talk about the style of play. I think that, um, you know, the ABA uh, gave the little guy more of a chance uh, than the NBA. You know, there was, there were, there were plenty of guys who were six foot or less uh, who were, who were in, in, in the, in the ABA. And, um, you know, many times there was a, a prejudice against a shorter player because, you know, the league, the NBA in itself uh, claimed to be more physical, uh, claimed to, you know, have bigger, badder guys, so to speak. And, and, and so the ABA with the three-point shot, uh, you know, spreading the floor, uh, creating an equal opportunity situation. I mean, I think today's game, it's, it's gone to an extreme in terms of the exploitation 
of the three-point shot. But in the ABA, you had to have a three-point shooter, and the, the, it was used as a weapon, you know, when you were down trying to make a comeback or, or, or late in the game uh, if you wanted to try and expand your league. But, you know, it was, it was, it was a totally different purpose uh, for the three-point shot than the way that it's utilized now. And, you know, there were most of the guys who shot it were the smaller players. I mean, I think there was, uh, you know, Stu, Stu Johnson, and there, there was there were a couple of uh, six foot ten guys or better who who would load up, but they weren't in mass. You know, Dan could step out there every now and then and, and miss a couple. <laughs> so, because you know, I mean, he had range and he was a good shooting, a good shooting big man, but uh, nothing like today. You know, Doc, just by accident. You can't tell what pops up on YouTube or why. Only the other day, something popped up on my YouTube feed. It was the last few minutes of a game, an NBA game, between the Sixers and the Celtics. And you guys are down by two, and Larry Bird misses two free throws. Now, you guys come down. You can't get a shot off. Barkley is blocked by McHale. Jump ball with three seconds. Gukas calls a timeout. And off the jump ball, you got a set play. The yeah. tap to you, and you hit a last-second three, kind of an over-the-shoulder thing, yeah. to win by a point, and the Celtics walk off like they're shell shot. Remember that game? Bank, to... And it was a bank shot too. Went <laughs> <laughs> it off the glass. So well, as long as you call late... bank, the guy gets an H no matter what. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I I remember that play. That was uh, you know, that was in the middle '80s when we were in, you know, the multiple playoff series uh, with the Celtics every year to see who was going to the finals. Yeah. But uh, they're still showing that, man. Maybe I ought to get a royalty on that or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Everything's on YouTube. You just don't yeah. know where to find it. it just but, you know, just, just to, just to um, you know, stay consistent with what Mike is, is talking about and what you mentioned, Bob and, and George and, and Dan, I'm sure you guys uh, feel the same way that there was – there was a uh, there was a love for the ABA, and there was also a uh, one for all, all for one mentality, you know. And you know, we I mean, we didn't decide that the NBA was our enemy per se, but I thought we were more the enemy because of envy or whatever the reason uh, by the NBA towards us, and. Uh, and so when somebody got some publicity in the ABA, if Dan got a magazine cover with Sports Illustrated or George got one with Sport Magazine or whatever, I'd be proud of them. You know, I, I mean, I'd, I'd be happy for them. So uh, I don't think there was ever a time in my ABA years, which were the first five years of my professional career, in which I had any envy or jealousy uh, towards any player because, you know, any publicity they got was helping to promote our league. You know, Mike, we've said this before, but it bears repeating. The first year after the merger, the 76-77 season, George and Doc and the 76ers, who also had Bobby Jones, a great ABA player, they go to the finals against the Portland Trailblazers. Five of the 10 starters on the two teams were ABA guys, and 10 of the 24 guys in the All-Star game that year had played in the ABA. So there's a testament uh, to just how strong the league was. If there was any relative weakness, there weren't a lot of great centers. Artis Gilmore was the greatest of them. But when it came to backcourt guys and forwards, 
I, I think toward the end of the ABA, there were more of them in the ABA that would truly be great than in the NBA. So, so let's talk about that merger and the influence the ABA brought on to to the NBA. So, obviously, you know, you just mentioned there's multiple players and, and the style. I know the three point line and the dunk contest and all kinds of different things were brought over. What are you still seeing in today's game um, in current basketball that you know really kind of was modernized or was really was was founded in the ABA that you're that you're watching today? We've got the All Star game, well, I think right? The official situation, you know, with three referees. Uh, you know, an open, more of an open uh, situation, obviously, gender-wise. You know, you have uh, female refs uh, in, in the NBA now. Uh, you know, you have uh, minorities in significant positions uh, with various franchises, uh, uh, GMs. Uh, you know, the, the, the ownership door has uh, opened up uh, since the uh, merger of the NBA and, and the ABA. Um, so... You know, uh, change, I mean, change is, change is usually great. It's even greater when you could be a participant in change. Yeah. So, you know, all, all the people who are on this show right now have played a role in terms of change occurring in basketball, period, you know, because of their existence and their presence in the game. I think if you look at today's game, it certainly mirrors much more the way basketball was played in the ABA than in the NBA at, at that time. And, uh, you know, the NBA adopted it, it with the exception of the red, white, and blue ball. The, the NBA adopted almost everything that the ABA did as soon as people forgot it was an ABA idea and they could take credit for it. I mean, from, from the slam dunk contest, which Doc won, Doc, to, my, to my knowledge, Doc won the very first dunk contest ever held at the ABA All-Star Game in Denver. Uh, the celebration of the All-Star Weekend, the wide open play, the dependence on the three-point line, all of that came from the ABA. Right. George, I think you were going to talk about All-Star Weekend, and I did. Well, yeah, um, it was, it was uh, just uh, exactly what Dan said. It's the three-point shot. Uh, the dunk contest, it all come from the ABA. It just created a, a, a exciting weekend. You know, the, the NBA was a really good league. They had really good players. But as Jewish, you, uh, you, you know, and Dan, you do too, when we went to the NBA, you found out that, you know, the league was you know, like a slow, was, you know, this pound the ball inside and you just beat guys up. But we had um, a more diverse type of player who could play outside, big guys, could handle the ball, could shoot. You know, it was it was just uh, – and we found it much easier to play in the NBA than we originally thought. And uh, and I think the first year that of the merger, there was how many – I think almost all the teams from the ABA made the uh, playoffs except one. Is that right? Correct me if I'm wrong, Julius or, or, or uh, Dan. Well, I know, I know. In Denver, we won the Midwest Division the right. first the first two years we were in the NBA. Right. Yeah, I think that the Nets probably didn't, right, Doc? Because you went to the Sixers, and the Nets weren't as good. The, Sixers, the Nets, Nets uh, got to the finals later on. Yeah, uh, the, the Sixers. You know, George and I. Uh, you know that that first year, and just to chime in on that a little bit, you know, we also had Carl Jones. 
uh, on our team, uh, yeah. a former ABA player. Right. And we, um, you know, our, our chances and our opportunity to really be a successful franchise just kind of came crashing down, you know, once uh, Coach Gene Shue was dismissed. And uh, Billy Cunningham replaced him. And, you know, I mean, the first move was trading George. So I, I think if, if we had been given a, a few years uh, to, you know, get our act together, uh, you would have seen something very different than what you were able to see. Um, and I, and that's, that's the God's honest truth. And, and George would probably uh, agree to it. You know, his uh, going to Denver and ultimately, you know, getting getting injured or whatever changed the changed the path of his career. You guys did all right. It's just the uh, the nature of the game that we uh, you know decisions are made that sometimes, you know, benefit others and and uh, contribute to the demise of, of other players. And it's a, it's a tough business. It's a tough, knockdown, drag out uh, business. And you know, uh, Dan was in management for, for many many years. Had to make a lot of uh, critical decisions regarding uh, players' lives and careers. So I guess you know you have to you have to have a little bit of luck on your side, uh, and and you, and you got to definitely stay healthy. And um, you know, I I just thought that making that point would be relevant to all of us being here right now. Definitely. So I do want to um, kind of have a little bit of an open forum here. So Bob, at the top, you mentioned that there's these legendary stories. And I know a couple years ago, the Dropping Dimes Foundation put on the 50-year ABA anniversary and it was a reunion. And a lot of those stories were shared on stage and um, throughout the weekend. But we've got a chance here to document them and have them on YouTube. Uh, so I'd love to kind of open up the floor to, to all of you to tell some of those legendary stories, some of the funny ones, some of the great ones, and some of your, your favorite ABA memories. So now we have to think of the ones that can be told <laughs> <laughs> on, on YouTube. So that kind of cuts the anecdote file in half, but it's really <laughs> funny stuff. I'll go last. Dan, I can I can kick it off for you. I was told I need to ask you about the Baltimore Claws. Yeah, well, you know that was the last year of the ABA, and a lot of a lot of teams were not succeeding and were falling by the wayside. I think that last year, uh, three different ABA teams went out of business, and we had the uh, we had the Baltimore the uh, Memphis Tam franchise that was going to fold. And it, it was basically given to two uh, rock show promoters in Baltimore. And they renamed it the Baltimore Clause. And I, 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 there were a lot of good players on that team. Unfortunately, they were at the end of their careers. Mel Daniels was there. Uh, Doc mentioned Stu, Stu Johnson, George Carter, uh, and Joe Mullaney was our coach. And so... Um, we started uh, training, training camp, and instead of doing two-a-days, we knew there was no hope of the Baltimore Claws everlasting. So we would have a practice in the morning, and then Joe and, and some of the other players would all go to Bowie Racetrack in the afternoon. 
and bet on and bet on horses instead of having a, a second practice. Uh, but the uh, I I fortunately went to Denver uh, before we even played exhibition games. But I think they played three exhibition games and then the claws folded as well. So I was very fortunate to get out of there, uh, get to Denver, uh, one of the four teams that uh, was included in the merger. You know, Mike, the Claws never played a game, as as Dan well knows, and named the Claws because of Baltimore Crab Claws, you know, by Chesapeake <laughs> Bay and all that stuff. But as Dan may recall, they fiddled around with other names before settling on the Claws, and they actually, for about a week, announced their intended name as the Baltimore Hookers. And then someone pointed out, this isn't really a good idea to call a team the Baltimore Hookers, right, Dan? Yeah, that's right. And after after they discarded that idea, they went to the Baltimore Crabs. And they, they thought that might not be very good either and finally wound up with the Baltimore Claws. <laughs> That was the ABA, Mike. Yeah, yeah. Well, my, our experience you know, was ABA yeah, was uh, truly amazing. Uh, you know, just my whole signing up with the ABA. It, it was uh, it was an agent named Steve Arnold, and uh, it, he just kept showing up. And this was after my uh, junior year at, at, at UMass, and. Uh, he, you know, he kept connect, uh, contacting my known associates, which was uh, Ray Wilson, Earl Mosley, the people who were my mentors, you know, when I was in high school and when I was in college. And long story short, there's a secret meeting. And the ABA is all about secret meetings, right? <laughs> <laughs> so there's a secret meeting uh, in, in Philadelphia. And the, the, the guys at the meeting was to explore uh, leaving school uh, a year ahead of the NBA draft and positioning you know, yourself with, uh, with, with the ABA, knowing that within two years, there was gonna be a merger of the NBA and the ABA. So this was the dialogue and this was the pitch uh, per se. So, so I, you know, take a train out of uh, Massachusetts uh, all the way to Philadelphia. I go to this, uh, this secret meeting uh, at the airport, the airport motel, and uh, Al Bianchi is there, you know, who's the coach of the team. Uh, Johnny Red Kerr was there, and Johnny was the, the general manager, and Earl Foreman was on the phone. <laughs> so, you know, they had three representatives and I was there with uh, uh, my high school coach, Ray Wilson, and my freshman coach from high school, uh, Earl Mosley. So we sit and talk and it goes around and around and around and around and around and I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I just finished my junior year. I was, you know, excited for the summer and then going back with my senior year and just finishing college because I, I didn't really look at myself the same way that the agent was looking at me, nor the Virginia Squires. And as it turned out, the Virginia Squires, they didn't know a whole lot about me. They did, they were just going by, you know, what uh, Steve Arnold had, 
had told them that I was a, a blue chipper or whatever they called it back, you know, back in the day. So uh, we go around and around, and, and this was supposed to be an exploratory uh, situation. At the end of the day, uh, they off they literally offer a contract because they were convinced. And they said they were convinced because they had big hands and had a big heart <laughs> that I would be a good good member to their franchise. And I knew nothing. I knew nothing about their franchise. So this was this was the last thing on my mind when I got on that train that I would, you know, suddenly uh, lose my amateur standing and become a pro basketball player in one fell swoop. And uh, that's exactly what happened. And the last thing, the last piece to it was. You know, my college coach giving a call uh, to, uh, what's his name, the lawyer in Boston, Bob, 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 somebody. Bob Wolf? Yeah, Bob Wolf, giving yeah. him a call and getting him to chime in on what he thought the ABA, NBA situation uh, was going to be like. And then another call, you know, to my mom. And, you know, when I called my mom and I said, you know, they want to, you want to give me a half a million dollar contract, you know, a four year contract for $125,000 a year. And as you guys know, payable over seven years. <laughs> so, so that was the deferred payment, the deferred payment plan. But, you know, with my, my, my stepfather working for the sanitation department, my mom, you know, being a, a hair salon. Uh, hairdresser or whatever. I mean, their combined in, income was under $10,000 uh, during that time. So, you know, the economics or the regonomics, as you call it, you know, suddenly come to the forefront and seem very significant, particularly, you know, for someone who had just turned 21 years of age. And, uh, you know, and there was the uncertainty with the future in terms of being drafted, becoming an NBA player. You know, I wasn't sold on that over all the years and, and, uh, and I had bypassed, you know, uh, uh, being an Olympian, um, I was losing that opportunity if I turned pro and, uh, and it, and it didn't mean that much back in 1972, you know, because of the social unrest and the different things that were going on in the country. So, so for me, I mean, this is a, a true story and it's heartfelt because, uh, something happened that, you know, created a pivot in my life, changed the direction of my life totally and the lives of many others, the teammates that I left behind uh, at UMass, uh, for one, and, um, and is, is a part of the reality of the, the ABA and the, and, and the ABA's uh, survival with, you know, getting guys like George and getting uh, Johnny Newman and, you know, getting uh, underclassmen Moses Malone mm -hmm. and, and, and many others too you know, to make that move, uh, open the gateway for a lot of what we see now with the one and dones. And the guys, you know, I mean, coming out of high school and coming from the international players, you know, starting their professional careers at age 15, 16, and 17. So Bob Julius mentioned, you know, getting on the train and the, the travel with the ABA. And I, I know you've got a pretty infamous story about a player who, who refused to get on a plane. Well... This is, you know, if, if I was a concert performer, this would be on my greatest hits list. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that there are people out there who've heard it before, but it's still in demand like 40 years later or going on. Well, actually more than 40 years later, now that I think of it. So everybody on this panel 
knew and played against Marvin Barnes. Marvin, if he had played to his full potential, he would have been on the stage in 1997 in Cleveland when they picked the 50 greatest players. He was a tremendous talent. And in fact, he was the rookie of the year in the ABA, the first year of the Spirits, 74-75. And that was also Moses Malone's rookie year. So it gives you an idea of how good he was. So we play in Kentucky against Dan's Kentucky Colonels. Louisville is in the Eastern time zone. St. Louis in the Central time zone, but they're not that far apart. Maybe a four and a half hour drive if there's not too much traffic. So the traveling secretary, who's also the trainer, because this was the ABA, we didn't have huge staffs, and teams traveled commercially, not by charter. So we lose the night before, as we usually did at Freedom Hall. We lose, and we gather at the airport early the next morning, and he hands out the itinerary, and it says, TWA flight 305, depart Louisville, 8 a.m., arrive St. Louis, 7.56. And Marvin Barnes beckons me over, he drapes his arm over my shoulder, looks down at me from more than a foot above me, and he goes, bro, bro, do you see this? I said, yes. He says, well, I don't know about you, but as for me, I am not getting on any time machine. <laughs> so, so a lot of people think when they hear that story that Marvin, you know, wasn't too bright, but he was actually smart and he was funny and he knew that was funny and he was pretty sure I would get it. So that's the story. Marvel wasn't getting on the time machine. It's a classic. Yeah, it's a classic. So I, I do, um, I do want to touch base uh, and talk about the Dropping Dimes Foundation. So, um, George, maybe I know a lot of you are involved on the advisory council and have, um, have been part of the 50-year anniversary um, that they put on. But tell us a little bit about how it was founded, why it was founded, um, and their mission. It was founded by uh, two guys, one being your dad, who uh, was a ball boy for the Pacers when I played. He is a, the eye, a big eye doctor here in Indianapolis. He's also the eye doctor for the Pacers. And another uh, guy by the name of Scott, who's an attorney. And, um, you know, this was all um, kind of brought uh, into uh, together by Mel Daniels, the late, great Mel Daniels. He he had a great heart and great compassion for the ABA, and he thought, what is it that we can put together and do something for some of the guys who are struggling? So this is how the Dropping Dimes Foundation was founded. It, like I said, it started in 2014, and I became immediately, I joined a board, the advisory board, along with Dan and a few other placers, uh, Bob Costas, uh, Peter Vesey, and a few other people. And uh, we had our 50th year anniversary here just the other year and uh, last year. And it was it was tremendous uh, seeing all the old guys. And we had a great, uh, great turnout. Um, but this foundation has done a lot for players um, presently. I mean, only you're only four years old, but uh, done home renovations for players uh, who've had mold and stuff in their house. We bought players' cards. The foundation has clothes, uh, payments for medical bills, uh, moving expenses, all types of things. And uh, hopefully we'll just continue to get stronger and stronger as we get more people aboard and, and to buy into this. Uh, you know, I think the biggest thing that we need is, you know, for the NBA to step in and, and maybe help supply a pension, you know, maybe, you know, $1,200, $1,300 a month would be a tremendous asset for some of the guys who used to play in the ABA. And it's truly needed, but um, 
this this foundation has done a tremendous job, and I'm just happy to be a part of it. Mark, so I know. if I could just add to that, uh, Scott Tarter, uh, John Abrams, uh, Ted Green, all of the people, they donate 100% of their time. Right. And they grew up Pacer fans. They heard about some dire situations some of the ABA players were in. And they formed this foundation, and it's all anonymous. Uh, I happen to know they helped out a couple of my former teammates because I was there with the the presentation. But uh, as George says, even picking up a doctor bill or paying utilities helps some of these ABA players who who didn't make any money when they were playing. They were great players, but just born at the wrong time. And so the Dropping Downs Dimes Foundation is a terrific organization. And I hope that uh, anybody watching this would, would go to the website and, and maybe help out a little bit. Well said, man. So Dan, can you tell us a little bit about that, uh, the event that happened in Kentucky where they did help your teammate? Yeah, uh, a, a couple of them. One, one uh, was a, a, a former teammate who uh, didn't know about the uh, some of the uh, the ABA retirement money that was available, and uh, they uh, the uh, you know John and and uh, and Scott being attorneys uh, helped him get that. Uh, another one was in a uh, was in a nursing home. And um, and we went uh, and and gave him all kinds of of uh, gear and tennis shoes. And and I'll tell you how much the players might feel about the guys that run this organization. A former teammate of mine, Ron Thomas, passed away, and his family asked Scott Tarter to come to Louisville and be one of the pallbearers. So the guys that run the foundation are making a huge impact on a lot of former ABAers' lives. Yeah, they've been doing um, incredible work and you can, you know, you can learn more on droppingdimes.org. I think we, we have a banner we can show to, to have the website. Um, I do wanna open it up to audience questions here in a second. So if you do have more, we've got a couple already in here, um, feel free to keep, keep typing them in. But before we do that, I, I wanna do one quick round robin with this group. And so, um, I'm going to give you an attribute, and I want you to pick the ABA player that best exhibits that attribute, and nobody on this panel. So you can't say each other, can't say yourself. Um, so I'd love to hear from all of you. So the, the first one on here is best scorer. Best scorer? Best, yeah, best scorer. Well, you can't say Julius? Can't or say anybody on the panel. Yeah, you, were, you were one, two, and three scoring leaders in one year, so we've got we've to gotta ask somebody else. <laughs> Well, if yeah, you, have to, if you have to pick somebody that isn't on this panel, then my pick would be Rick Barry. Uh, Rick, Rick, Rick Barry would start at 30 points a night. I, I read a, I read a quote of his one night. He said, he said, I'm bound to get 20 shots and I'm bound to get 10 free throws. He said, I'll make half my shots. I'll make all of my free throws. So I start each night at 30 points. <laughs> That's really a good choice, Rick, according to Rick. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would say uh, Travis Grant. Machine gun. The, yeah. machine, the machine gun. I mean, just, just this guy was a phenomenal scorer. I don't know whether we should call him a phenomenal shooter or a phenomenal scorer or whatever, because once he got it over his head, 
there was very little you could do about it. And it always looked like it was going in from my perspective. And I didn't play against him that long or whatever. And, and you know, he, he couldn't run. He couldn't jump. <laughs> he couldn't guard anybody. <laughs> <laughs> but he was an unguardable entity. And if he got the ball, <laughs> he was going to find a way to put it in the basket. So he was, he was just one of my – he would be my guy in terms of scoring. Well, my pick would be, without question, Iceman George Gervin. He was uh, he was. Tripping. I don't know why I can't hear George. Oh, you can't hear me? Can you hear me now, Julius? Is that better? Somebody fix that. We can hear you. I still can't hear you. I don't know why. Yeah. Can everyone you have to learn how to read his lips. Can hear Julius, too. Yeah, you, you, have to pronun- you have to enunciate. Everybody else hears me, right? Lips. I can hear you, George. Okay. Well, it would be Iceman for me. He... Uh, he done it so easily. You know, I played with a guy, and um, he, he always wanted to guard George Gervin. He goes, I'm going to stop this guy. And, you know, two days before the game, that's all he talked about was stopping Iceman. So we played him here in Indianapolis, and this guy, Ice coming out of the locker room, and this guy was waiting on him. He walked into the court, and he goes, this is where it's going to be all night long. And, uh, you know, Iceman looked at him, and, you know, the game starts. And uh, he's all over ice. He's guarding him and all in his face. And I just looked at him and said, hey, young fella, he said, just relax. I'm going to get mine. And he got 55 on us. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All, next all one good, is. All good oh, go ahead, Bob. I'll tell you another story, Mike. And it's another Marvin Barnes story because he was kind of the guy. He exemplified the spirits. Very talented. <laughs> very undisciplined. Very humorous. In two years, if you if you read Loose Balls, they existed for two years. They take up about a third of the book with anecdotes. They kind of exemplified how crazy uh, the ABA was. And he had a couple of 50-point games, and he averaged well over 20 points and more than 15 rebounds. He was just tremendous. So here we are after some game that we lose. And I go in the locker room, and he's got the stat sheet. And he reels me in. And I think he's really beginning to get it. He goes, bro, come over here. So I sit down next to him. He says, you know, the problem with us is we're all just individuals. There's no team play. We don't have a team concept. I go, "Uh uh-huh. And he goes, look at this. Look at that, bro. With three minutes to go, I have 48 points. Do they get it to me so I can have 50? No, they don't. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. So I want to do one. I want to do one more entry and then we'll open up to audience questions. And it's, you know, we were in the seventies. So who had the best hair? Oh, no question. Right. Wow. Darnell Hillman and Julia Serving. There were a lot of guys that had great hair. Doc, Doc had a, Doc had a nice Afro. Um, uh, Larry Keenan that you played with, uh, George had a good Afro. Artis Gilmore had one. Doc, didn't you play with a guy by the name of Ollie Taylor? I remember yeah. Ali, Ali, Ali Taylor had, had a great – Ali had it out there, but all those people you named, including myself, you know, came in second to Darnell. You know, uh, Darnell, I mean, he, he, he was just like a walking poster for Afros. Yeah. <laughs> and he could jump out the gym for one thing. George, you know, he was oh, yeah. a teammate. He was a smooth guy, yeah. California guy. 
that hair would just be blowing in the wind. <laughs> like he was on his way to Hollywood. Yeah, when he ran, after I enjoyed having a good friendship uh, uh, with him, and there were some times when we had the hair discussion. <laughs> How do you do yours? How do you do yours? Do you, you know, do you use the the, the uh, cake knife or, or what have you? Or do you sleep on it a certain way? I mean, you know, it was just you know one of those. It was a boy to boy discussion, you know, about hair in those days, and and uh, and, and he was uh, he was he was just just as cool as a as a cucumber. Here's the flip so, side of that coin, Mike. Uh, we all remember a guy named Billy Knight, who was a very good player and later was yeah. an executive in the NBA. And for whatever reason, either he didn't choose to or he couldn't grow his hair out. And just about everybody had an afro of one kind or another. Maybe not as extravagant as Doc and Dr. Duncanstein, Darnell mm -hmm. Hillman, but yeah. Billy had almost nothing up there. And his nickname was TWA, Teeny Weeny <laughs> Afro. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, That's clever. <laughs> All right. Anything else you guys want to highlight before we open up to audience questions? Well, you know, we left a, obviously we've left a lot of stuff out. I just like to say that, uh, you know, I played five years in the ABA and 11 years in the NBA. Uh, certainly the five in the ABA were a lot more enjoyable. Just the uh, freedom that I had to, you know, play a certain way and uh, and not dealing with a lot of the you know, politics that was associated with transitioning into the NBA. So so they were my favorite five years of, of my pro career and whatever was accomplished uh, during that time had a lot to do with, you know, just having freedom to explore. And I, I always looked at it as a blessing in my life to, to have those years. So so I fight for those years. Well said. Well said. So we're going to pop up a, a couple questions here. The first one is from Jake, who said, who are the best ABA players young fans don't know about, and how can we recognize their contributions to the game? Well, I would say this. It would be the, the players who peaked before the merger. There were some who never got into the NBA, and some who were sort of toward the ends of their career. Mac Calvin was an unbelievably good backcourt player. Willie Wise, whose best oh, years were with Utah, was a wonderful player. James Silas, who was uh, George Gervin's teammate on the Spurs, blew out his knee the last year of the ABA. He would have been an all-star for sure and likely a Hall of Famer. And there used to be a committee, uh, and I, I was on this committee, to go back and look at ABA guys for the Hall of Fame. Um, and I guess they finished, they figured their work was done and they had enshrined enough of them, but there are still some uh, that have been left out. And I just named a few, there's many more than that. I, yeah, I, would, add, uh, I would add my former teammate and uh, my best friend to today, Louis Dampier, who uh, was the all time leading scorer in the history of the ABA. And one of only two players, Byron Beck is the other one, who started and ended the ABA with the same franchise. So Louis Dampier was a, was a great shooter and a great scorer. Well, for me, it without question would be Roger Brown. Roger Brown's a legendary player from New York City, grew up with Connie Hawkins, 
They played in a legendary high school game in New York City. I think Connie had 50 and Roger had 45, but Roger Brown was an absolutely incredible player. Uh, Big time uh, guy in the clutch. Uh, One of the great guys, a great teammate, Uh, but he had peaked before the merger. And of course he started late because he got caught up in a gambling situation in college. So he lost half of his career fighting that battle and uh, kind of joined the Pacers as about a 30-year-old and uh, ended up being a Hall of Famer, but uh, he was incredible. I couldn't hear George, but I, I'd like to – I don't know whether he mentioned Warren Jabali or not, but Warren no. Jabali is, is the guy who, you know, comes to, to my mind. Uh, he and Willie Price, you know, they were definitely the best two-way players. Uh, Warren would get on you and he'd hand check and you know at six foot four, six foot five, or whatever. Uh, you you were kind of at his mercy and offensively. Uh, you know late in the game, he was like Captain Late James Silas or whatever. He was going to make the play or, or get the shot. He was he was like a, a, a different type version of of Oscar Robertson, maybe a meaner version because <laughs> nobody. Nobody crossed him, and uh, and you, you had to uh, respect him because of his game, and also also because of his uh, personal stance, because he was a very very dedicated uh, Muslim, and um, you know, he, and he was an ABA guy uh, through and through. Yeah, I'll, I'm going to mention three more, uh, Mike, and you can factor in my bias because they all, at one time or another, were on the spirits. <laughs> Ron Boone had his best years with the Utah Stars, but he was with the Spirits after Utah folded. And he had some good years at the beginning of his NBA career after the merger with Kansas City. But Ron Boone was really, really good. Um, And so was Freddie Lewis, who was on those Indiana championship teams, but also played for the Spirits and made a series winning shot over Brian Taylor, who was a darn good player uh, for the Nets defeating the Doc, and and they were the defending NBA champions, ABA champions, uh, made this clutch shot that won that series in 1975. And then my personal favorite, the late and wonderful Steve Snapper Jones, who was an ABA all-star and is better known to the general public as a longtime commentator on NBC. And he was kind of the wise man of the team. You know, Dan, he started out the first year in the league. He was there. Uh, He was on multiple teams, but he was in the ABA all but the last year when he wound up in, in Denver, uh, and actually in Portland. He wound up in Portland as a teammate of, of Bill Walton there. But he was kind of the wise man of the team, and he was always tossing out these little sly asides. And traveling commercially, as you guys know, first class was allotted by seniority. The coach would sit up there and then the veterans. And I noticed that Snapper always sat toward the back of the plane. And I'm walking toward the back of the plane one day, and I say, Snap, you could be up there. What are you doing back here? And he looks at me, he goes, young boy, have you ever heard about one of these bad boys backing into a mountain? (laughs) (laughs) That's crazy. crazy. But, you know, the good thing about it with the Hall of Fame now, you know, every year there's there's an ABA player going in. So many of the guys who were long overdue, you know, Booney, as you mentioned, uh, you know, he just kind of really comes to mind right now in terms of the longevity of his career and, and night in and night out. I mean, he was 
just a player who definitely should be in the Hall of Fame, and as well as uh, Willie Wise. And, you know, I could probably name six to 12, you know, other guys, but there is a pathway uh, to get into the Naismith Memorial Hall of Fame. I mean, you know, many people are in the Hall of Fame in their cities and with their colleges and so on and so forth. But the Naismith Memorial Hall of Fame is the one that's recognized as being the, uh, you know, the, the Magna Carta. So uh, we're, we're happy to see that that happens every year. So we're going we're gonna to do two more questions. The first one we've got here is from James, and uh, it's, it's to you, Dr. J, which is, who are your top three dunkers of all time? Uh, top three, you know, Ben Sanity is up there. Uh, I, I think Neek, uh, Dominique, and uh, who would be third? Is there a third place? <laughs> I, I, I've got a third place for you. And again, I'm, I'm biased like Bob, but David, David, David Thompson, David Thompson, yeah, David Thompson, who finished second to, yeah. uh, to doc in that first ABA slam dunk contest. Uh, David was a high riser. No question about that. And it didn't even seem like he could palm the ball. <laughs> so, that all-star game, just, I think that was played in Denver. Right? rise with the, you know, 43-inch vertical. And, yeah. yeah. So, so that's a good third pick. Yeah. An all-star game in Denver with, uh, with uh, Julius and and and, uh, and David uh, in the dunk contest was a classic. What do you think, Costas? You, you're pretty well taken care of it. And we're kind of <laughs> confining it to the ABA guys. Yeah. I mean, there are guys now that are just building on on what they saw before and coming up with new moves and everything. And I'm not just saying this because Doc and I go way back and, and he's here. I've seen a zillion different moves and guys keep coming up with new stuff. But within a game, I have never seen a more astonishingly great move than Doc's move along the baseline, under the basket, in the finals, against the Lakers, out the other side. That, if you wanted to put together a highlight reel, you couldn't top that play as an in-game play. I've never seen a play any more astonishing than that one by anybody, and it's been 40 years since. Great point, Bob. I thought Dan it wasn't a dunk, but it was sweet. Dan, Dan, didn't I steal that one from you? <laughs> I'm sorry? Didn't I steal that move from you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm, except I picked the ball up off the floor and laid it off the glass. <laughs> so we've got one final question here from Sonny, which is, um, what would you say is the lasting legacy of the ABA and how is it reflected in today's league? So we've talked a little bit about this, but it would be a great way for us to kind of end today. Costas? Three-point shot, wide open play, the game as – entertainment. I'm not saying that Jerry West and Oscar Robertson and for gosh sake, Wilt, he was a wonder of the world. I'm not saying those guys weren't entertaining, but the whole idea of the ABA was that every game should be not just good basketball, but entertainment and showmanship. And now all of sports and especially basketball has, has embraced that. You know, it was, it was, it was interesting that, uh, you know, the Pacers used to have the bear wrestling, 
you know, and right. there, was, there was the introduction of the bottom and Bailey aspect uh, to to basketball. And when when you used to see professional basketball games, you know, if you were a purist, there were a lot of things you didn't necessarily want to see. Uh, you know, cheerleaders on the pro level, you saw that on the college level. And the ABA had the ball girls, you know, Miami, the Miami team had the, the, the ball girls in bikinis or whatever. So from a purist standpoint, you know, when there was a timeout, if, if you were, wanted to learn something about basketball, you might be able to stand behind the bench and listen to the coach talk to his players and, and then, you know, make a decision about, well, I kind of know what they're going to do when they get back on the court. And suddenly, almost overnight, and the ABA had a lot of influence in this, you can go down there and listen all you want. You wouldn't be able to hear anything because it, it was a party going on in the arena after every time out, you know, people rushing out on the floor and displaying their products or doing their thing or amusing the crowd and the organ playing in Madison Square Garden and, you know, all of the things that became associated with sports and are still associated with sports, including the player celebrations. You know, when they, when they score a touchdown, they got to do a dance. They got to do something that they've rehearsed and the crowd is expecting that. So it's evolved completely, you know, from, from what it was. And, and the ABA was, played an instrumental role in, in the evolution of sport being what it is now from a, a attendance standpoint and from an inclusionary standpoint, fans and the, and the players. Well, thank you guys so much for sharing these stories. It's been really incredible to, to hear you guys um, reminisce about the ABA and, and educate um, some hopefully new fans of, of uh, the memories of the league. It really is a fraternity, Mike. It's, it's a lasting fraternity. It, it didn't last that long, just nine seasons. But here we are going on half a century later. It is actually more than half a century yeah. since the first ABA game. And those of us who are still around still count it as an important chapter of our lives. Big time. Well said, Bob. Absolutely. Yep. And um, thanks also to the Dropping Dimes Foundation for helping put together this panel. Again, learn more about the organization at droppingdimes.org. Thanks, everyone, for watching. Thanks for listening. If you have any feedback about this or any other episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can visit g.co slash talks at Google slash podcast feedback to leave your comments. To discover more amazing content, you can always find us online at youtube.com slash talks at Google, on our website, google.com slash talks, or via our Twitter handle at talks at Google. Talk soon.